Uh, it's a real unusual evening because I'm not preaching Sunday. Uh, Jeff is. And Jeff is going to preach uh, in an interview style. And so the missionaries will be on stage with Jeff. And I asked him what scripture he was going to go with. And he said, I'm going to be in Luke chapter five. I said, well, I can certainly spend a little bit of my Wednesday day. I, I've been studying today on next week's message and the state of the church message. Uh, but I can sure spend a little bit of time getting ready for Luke chapter five, because it's one of those great, great passages of scripture. And the symbolism that Jeff will point to on Sunday is that uh, when we let Jesus get in the boat with us, he's going to give us more fish than we can know what to do with. And uh, so uh, we're going to study the, the passage uh, as it is tonight. And um, okay, who wrote Luke? Luke. Who's buried in Grant's tomb, right? It, Luke. And Luke was physician. Doctor? No. <laughs> was he Jewish? No, that's what I thought. Did he ever meet Jesus? That's a good question. I don't think he ever did. Uh, he was he was Paul's um, travel partner. It's it it seems very obvious that he uh, met some of the other disciples. And my guess is that he spent a lot of time with the Apostle Peter. Uh, I think that Luke is Peter's version of the gospel. Uh, that's 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 just where where I think. And uh, and so I know that Luke spent a lot of time with Paul because Acts the the book of Acts is the second volume of Luke. So Luke and Acts were probably one book, but that scroll would be far too long to be a scroll. So I think the early church fathers broke that up into the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. But most people on television on a game show, if they were to say who were the, the four most important apostles, they'd say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> And uh, and Luke was not uh, one of the 12. So he is a physician. He is an evangelist. And he is meticulous about the way that he writes. He is more narrative and more chronological than John, certainly. And he's more detailed than Mark and somewhat Matthew. Why do you figure Matthew and John, Matthew and Luke are the two most meticulous of the Gospels? Why Matthew do you figure? Matthew was a tax collector. So he was an accountant, right? Yeah, Gerald McCarley writes a Gospel. It's going to be like Matthew. Um. Because he was, he kept up with the debits and the credits and the balance. And, and so there's a lot of symmetry in Matthew. There's a lot of, of, of groups of things that uh, are, um, are presented in such a way that they, they almost act like they're on a balance sheet. Exactly, Emily. 
Well, what about Luke? He's a physician. And so he is, he, he interacts a lot with nature and human suffering. Luke is kinder towards women than any of the other three. He is, uh, he is kinder towards outsiders than the other three. And so Luke's gospel is always going to be um, a little bit more of a human uh, interest story. And so it makes sense when we get into Luke chapter 5, especially when uh, we see the subhead. Um, I assume that most of your Bibles say Jesus calls the first disciples. Well, let's go ahead and get it out in the open. Luke's version is different than John's version, is different than Matthew's version, is different than Mark's version. According to John, Andrew was the first disciple called, John 1, 35. Andrew was the, the first one called, and then he went and found his brother Simon. Well, I think they're both right, because I don't think this is the first time that Jesus has met Simon. I don't think that this is the first time that Peter has seen Jesus. And I'll, I'll explain that in just a minute. So for us to understand chapter five, we probably ought to go back and at least glance at chapter four, because that's going to set the stage for it. What do you see in your headings in chapter four that, uh, that sort of help us um, to, to understand where we are in Jesus's ministry. The first thing that happens in chapter four is what? The temptation. So, so Jesus has ministry, it's going public. That this is, this is the, the hinge in Luke's gospel where Jesus goes from, and you remember Luke is the one with the birth narrative, Luke chapter 2, we spend time there at Christmas. And then uh, Luke chapter 3 is, is sort of a focus on John the Baptist, human interest, his cousin. And then he's baptized, uh, and, 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 and now Jesus is going public. So Jesus submits himself to temptation. Why? Yeah, it's 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 a, it's establishes his human credentials. The miracles will establish his divine credentials. The temptations establish his human credentials. And I I, I could spend so much time on the temptations, but uh, when when I'm asked how many temptations there were, I say four. I'm gonna say four. Um, there was. Uh, the stones become bread, the jump off of the pinnacle of the temple, if you'll only bow down to follow me. But the first thing he said is, if you are the son of God. And it's like he is tempting his very identity. And that's the temptation I relate to the most. Uh, just, just this morning, I thought about uh, uh, some poor reactions that I had uh, responded to some situations, and, and and I could almost hear Satan going, "If you're really a good Christian, you wouldn't do that anymore. You you wouldn't have uh, 
lack of patience anymore. You wouldn't still have greed issues or lust issues or anger issues or pride issues. If you were such a hotshot Christian, my goodness, Alan, you're a pastor. You know, it's the old story about the nursery worker who's changing the diaper. And she said, can you believe a pastor's kid does this? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's kind of the, the, the way we, we, we approach, we go, we, we ought to be better than this. And so Satan starts off, if you really are the son of God, how about doing some tricks? How about showing off? And so the temptations uh, give way in chapter four to the, uh, the public ministry beginning. And, and in my Bible, the subhead uh, between chapter four, verse 13 and chapter four, verse 14, in my Bible, that's where it says Jesus begins his public ministry. So let's think for a minute because it's going to be a key to understanding chapter five. What happened when Jesus's ministry went public? He was in Nazareth and, and his, the people he grew up with rejected him. Okay, so he was rejected in Nazareth, but that was kind of unusual, wasn't it? Because he was embraced everywhere else. And, and, and I wrote a little note uh, between chapter four and chapter five that a lot of the details here need to be understood in light of his increasing popularity. That he, it, it wasn't like you're, you know, we, we talk about young parents and, you know, one kid who's under two is pretty portable. Throw them in a car seat, take them anywhere. Then you get two kids and you kind of have to divide and conquer. Then you have three kids, and as parents, you have to move out of a man-to-man defense and into a zone. <laughs> and then you had four or five or six. And as the crowds got greater, his ability to move got lesser. And we're early in Luke. I, 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 I'm a big believer in, in the, uh, noticing the chronology through the, the scripture that, that the things that happen early, except for John, John, John didn't really care about chronology, but all the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they sort of take things loosely in order. And so we're talking about when Jesus is just 30 years old and he is just beginning his earthly ministry. He's just going public. The temptations establish his, his uh, human credentials. The miracles begin to establish his divine credentials. And now we're starting to gain momentum. Well, you see a couple of things in chapter four that point towards chapter five. Um, verse uh, 18, he, he's, he's speaking in Nazareth, what Emily was talking about. This is what got him in trouble in his own hometown. He stood up in the, the synagogue there and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the people there are going, that's Messiah talk. He, he's starting to, to sound like he's Messiah. Who does he think he is? And then he, he heals a man with an unclean spirit. And then in verse 38, he arose and left the synagogue 
and he entered Simon's house. Where is he by now? Capernaum. So Simon Peter's hometown was Capernaum, or his, in John's version, it sort of um, maybe points to Bethsaida as being his hometown, but uh, it's clear that his mother-in-law, his married home was in Capernaum, and that was more or less Jesus's headquarters for the Galilean ministry. It's right by the Sea of Galilee. It's a seaport town. Uh, when we go there in May, we'll see a statue uh, where Peter, the fisherman, is holding the keys to the kingdom. And it was a piece of art. That's And right behind it, you can see the Sea of Galilee. So, so obviously, a, a, a port city, a, a seaside town, uh, one of the larger towns, Capernaum and Tiberias, were the two larger ones that are on that coast. And so that's where they are now. I believe that the key to understanding chapter five is to look at the very last verse in chapter four in light of what we've just said. There are three words that I want you to see. In the very last two verses, he says, he said to them, I must preach the good news. So I circled the word must, compelling, urgency, uh, to use the double negative, I can't not, <laughs> I can't not speak. Um, in Acts chapter four, uh, when Peter and John are um, accosted by the temple leaders for healing a, a man there, they said, we can't stop speaking about that which we have seen and heard. I can't not talk about Jesus. I, I must. So, so Jesus said that. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Got to linger there for just a second. Because the kingdom of God was central. It was, it was the... Love God, love people, make disciples, make difference of Jesus's ministry. When he said kingdom of God, you knew he was getting at a core message, that that was, that was the absolute epicenter of his preaching was the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God had a lot of dimensions. The kingdom of God, it's, it's where God reigns. It's, it signifies God's authority. It signifies his sovereignty. It signifies that it is a kingdom and that he is a king. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, Isaiah told us that, that Jesus came as a suffering servant of the king. So he is, he is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what? Good news. I must preach the good news. And of course, we, we get the term gospel from that phrase. Uh, the Greek phrase euangelion, which means good news. And so it's uh, we get the word evangelism from the same root word. So preach the good news. I must evangelize. I have to. It's an urgency. It's a passion. It's compelling. It's a fire in my bones. Uh, the kingdom of God is here and now because the Holy Spirit has come. Back in the temple in, in uh, Nazareth, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, the Holy Spirit is beginning to show up. He's beginning to tag in. He, he would not be 
fully revealed until Jesus ascended to heaven. But but the spirit of the Lord showed up at his baptism, showed up. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, and I must preach the good news of the kingdom. I must proclaim sight for the blind, healing for the sick. I must. And he, he puts social justice and evangelism in the same boat. We must heal. We must tell. We, we must feed. We must tell. And so it's it's the kingdom of God is a ministry of making a difference. So he says, I must preach. I circled must. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I circled kingdom of God. And then he's specific. He, he's telling them that the next step. This is kind of like the state of the church address. It's not looking way far ahead. It's saying, this is where we've been. This is where we are. This is where we're going. I need to go to some other towns. Been to Nazareth. Been to Capernaum. Now I'm going to hit some other spots. And so some other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And I circled the word sent. What does sent tell us? That Jesus yielded to the authority of the Father. I was sent. Who who gets to send, right? You know, when my mom would send me to the store, I knew clearly that my mom was in charge. So to to be sent means that you are, are answering to a commander in chief. And so the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, backdrop of his baptism and the spirit resting on him, his proclamation of the spirit in the temple in Nazareth, the healing of the, uh, the unclean spirit. He, he, he basically, it, it, just to make sure that it was clearly understood where his authority went, his very first miracle in this sequence is to deal with a man who's demon-possessed. So you could say turning water into wine might not have a lot to do with Satan. You could say that walking on water, but but he is clearly coming from doing battle with Satan in the wilderness. And now he casts a demon from a man, and then he begins to heal. It's like Luke wanted to separate one kind of miracle from other kinds of miracles to make sure that we understand that coming off the battlefield in the wilderness of temptation, that he has now told Satan, get thee behind me. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. From the mouth of the Father. He sent me. I must tell. I must preach the kingdom of God. And so now we're ready for chapter five, and I've got 20 minutes left. (laughs) So increasing popularity. Last verse in chapter four, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You could put parentheses Galilee, talking about the same thing. He's not talking about all of Judea here. He's talking about the Galilee, the, the region around the Sea of Galilee. And so now in chapter five, Luke says, on one occasion, so clearly it's a break from chapter four, time has passed, 
Possibly some other things have happened. Now the crowd was pressing in him to hear the word of God, for he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's just those are synonyms. So he's standing by the lake. The crowd is starting to push him towards the water. And uh, he says, well, uh, maybe I'll just use a boat for a pulpit. He is in Galilee, likely near Capernaum. It's, 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 it's likely that he has migrated maybe a little north, maybe a little east. He's by the sea around Tiberias, Capernaum, somewhere around there. Um, so the Romans loved maps and roads. The Roman governance had divided all what we call Israel into three areas, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And so the, the whole northern part of, of Israel was, was not really cataloged. That was, uh, that, that was in the divided kingdom, that was Israel. We're, we're in the south part of the kingdom. Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and we're in the Galilee region. So Jesus preaches by the shore, and he performs a miracle to make a point. Um, has anybody ever heard why Galilee? Why the vast majority of his ministry was Galilee? When we go to Israel and we go to a, a, an archaeological site and somebody says, this was a town. We go, barely as big as this room. Well, there were 250 towns and villages right around Galilee. So the when, when he says, I must go and preach the kingdom of God, uh, I've got to go to all these other towns. I, there, there's a lot of little places around here. And, uh, and we, we, we can find the ruins of a whole lot of them. Uh, and so he was uh, out and about, and that's where he was headed. So, again, the calling of the disciples is different in the four uh, accounts. And I, I'm not going to go into that tonight. I'm just going to take Luke's at face value and and we'll sort of work out of loops. So the crowd is pressing. He's standing by the lake. He saw two boats by the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. There's no fish cluttering up the boats. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land. Give me a give me a pulpit. Give me a give me a platform. I, I I need to be away so that people can hear me. And so he sat down and taught the people from the boat. True or false? The teaching is the main point of this story. The fact that Jesus taught by the Sea of Galilee. False. Why, Gary? Dr. Gary? Well, well, 
thanks for doing that. Now the pressure's really on. Uh, <laughs> My arm kind of hurts. <laughs> uh, I think it's false simply because uh, the point here is that the God or the Jesus is calling the disciples to him. Uh, and that, that seems to be the point here. We see a relate. I think you mentioned earlier that, uh, that Simon already seems to have a relationship with Jesus. I think you see that here. And I think the whole purpose of this passage here is to show the, the, the creation of relationships, the development of relationships, and the call. Uh, I think when you look at what the, the fact that Simon here seems to already have a passing familiarity with Jesus simply because Jesus jumps in his boat and Simon don't say, what are you doing? Right. Yeah, I, I think he already knew him. But the fact that we get on and off the note about teaching pretty quickly. We don't know what he said. We don't know who he said it to. We don't know how long he talked. Uh, it, Luke is not really interested in the content of the teaching. He's interested, surprise, surprise, in the relationship between Jesus and Peter. That's, that's what he's interested in here. And so he, he gets off of the teaching uh, fairly quickly. He sat down, he taught the people from the book. That's all we have. So teaching is not the main point. When he finished speaking, I guess he gave the benediction and Robert sang one more song and everybody left. And it was like it was just the fishing crew now. We learn in just a few minutes that there are uh, some other uh, named fishermen there. Um, the I, I believe, and, and there's scripture evidence, that the sons of Zebedee and the sons of John were in a fishing business together. Uh, Peter... Andrew, James, John, they're, they're always a little bit of a package deal. And so their dads, perhaps related some way, maybe by marriage, we don't know. But there, there, there was obviously a, 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 a partnership because these two boats were out together and the sons of Zebedee were in one of them and the sons of John were in the other. And so we, we kind of think that maybe they had a, a, a co-op or a, or, or a little 501, whatever. Um, so Jesus preaches. Then he says, let's go fishing again. Um, they're not excited about this. Why? Been fishing all night and nothing. Not, not a little bit. Nothing. They weren't excited about it. They weren't excited about going out again because they fished all night. Not yet. They're not full yet. We're talking about in chapter five, verse four. When he finished speaking, he said, "Put out into the deep. Let down your nets for a catch." Simon answered. Um, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Fish a little bit more. I, I can only tell you what it'd be like if I was Simon. I worked all night and I'm tired. 
I know a lot more about fishing than a carpenter knows. Best fishing's at night. Best fishing's at night. I just clean the net. I just wash my car. You want me to drive in a rainstorm? We already washed our nets. All these crowds and loud teaching has driven the fish away. I mean, Jesus made him no religion, but he don't know fishing. Yet, Peter let down the nets. And I, I don't know when I wrote this note in my Bible, but I wrote, Jesus being in the boat makes all the difference. The difference between being there all night and here is that Jesus is in the boat. We, we, don't, we don't think Jesus got out of the boat and was shouting at him. He was in the boat with him. He was probably amused by all of this. I, I don't know if you've seen the, the film, The Chosen, but the scene of Jesus doing this miracle is one of the, the, the most heartwarming scenes in the show because Jesus is just amused. It's like, I know what's going to happen. And uh, I don't know, I, I compare it to uh, when we first finished uh, Main Street and uh, even before we were officially open, um, I gave Ed Hayes a tour and he started crying. It was like just, uh, and I knew what he was going to see. I'd seen it. I'd been there. I, and, and I wanted to watch the joy in his face. And over and over again, when I would take people down the hallway or see the new lobby or into the worship center, I already knew what they were going to experience. And my joy was in their joy. And, and I think that's where Jesus was. I think his joy was in their joy. He already knew what was going to happen. And I think his joy. One poet said, uh, at God's word, there was light. At God's word, the sun, moon, and stars and planets were created. At God's word, life came to the earth. At God's word, creation is held together. At God's word, empires rise and fall. At God's word, the nets are full. There's just a, a sense of, of sacred obedience that's here, a boat overflowing. Um, Can I jump in real quick? Sure. I love how this story has its parallel at the end of John. Uh, I mean, it's almost the exact same story where Jesus, if I recall correctly, is on the shore and they're out fishing. And he's just like, how's it going out there? Y'all catch anything? They haven't recognized him yet. They don't know who he is. And he said, well, why don't you toss your uh, nets over and let's see what happens. It's almost the same thing here. You get the impression I've already done it. And so all of a sudden he says, just just give it a go. That same kind of thing he was just talking about. He knows what's about to happen. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they throw it out there. And I, th I think at that point, it was probably when Peter's eyes were open, he's like, wait, I've seen this before. And that's when he jumps in the water, forgets everybody else on the boat. They're left trying to drag the stuff in. And he's swimming to shore, probably fully clothed, uh, trying to catch up to Jesus. Uh, and I, I just love how these two John stories yeah, parallel these two things. Yeah, there, there are so many parallels there. Um, and, and Peter was kind of, he, he might not have been the Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> uh, 
he 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 might not have been the star student, but boy, when he did something, it was all in. And um, so I promised you I'd answer the question of why I thought that Simon already knew Jesus. Well, we read right past it a few minutes ago in chapter four. It says that he healed Simon's mother-in-law. And so he'd not only known he was in his house. And uh, so Simon probably felt privileged. And, and I think that set it up. You know, it's like Simon. And, and I hope you had that feeling when you first met the Lord. He came to find you. He sought you out. He knew your name. And he said, Simon, I want to be in your boat. And of course, the miracle of fish is, it's almost comical. Uh, you know, every fisherman's dream is, is more fish than you can put in the boat. But then when you get more fish than you can put in the boat, it starts to sink the boat. And he called James and John and said, bring your boat over here. We need to offload some of these fish. And then both boats got filled up. And I think that is the, the crux of the story. But then we get into Luke's description of what was going on. Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat. Well, what do we call our mission people that we help? Partners. That 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 we, we should realize from this story of no place else that that's the way ministry is supposed to work. Jesus was about to call 12 disciples. These are, in Luke's version, these are the first four. Uh, John's version, Andrew's first. A um, little later in this story, if we had time, I was going to talk about Matthew just a little bit. Uh, he knows that there needs to be a community. And when people wonder, wait a minute, I, I can worship God on a beach. I can worship God in the forest. I can worship God all by myself. And all of us who are, are introverts go, yes. But he didn't design us that way. He designed us to be in community through all the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows. You know, Jesus knew how many fish they were going to catch. But he also knew that Peter would deny him. He knew that then. And so his humanity was in the moment, the delight in the fish. But his divinity was looking down the road at how many things he will do with Simon Peter, even to the point of the crucifixion. So we see the switch go on in chapter 5, verse 8. They came out, they filled the boats, they begin to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he felt down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me. I am a sinful man. It's like he knew that he needed to be caught by a different kind of fisherman. He knew that, 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 that it wasn't about so many fish in the boat. It was about, I have a spiritual need. I have a, um, um, I, 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 I need something more than a lot of fish. Does 
his proclamation remind you of anything maybe in the Old Testament? Isaiah. Almost like he's quoting Isaiah, isn't it? Um, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I won't put anybody on the spot. Isaiah 6, 5. Um, I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. It's almost like, and Peter, of course, had been trained as a Jew. He, he, he's Jewish boy. He'd been memorized the Torah. He, he knew the prophet Isaiah. Um, we're going to preach on Isaiah this fall because I, I, I just think we need to spend some time with Isaiah because the prophecies of Messiah are so important for reasons like this, Peter, in his training as a little Jewish boy, he understood, wait a minute, God has his hand on me and I am not worthy. I, I, I am not. He called me by name. He came and found me. But now I, I see the divinity in him. I see the, the face of God, the sovereignty of God. We get Isaiah and he said, for all for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And so a transaction took place here where I'm probably putting words in somebody's mouth, but Peter is clearly established as the leader of the disciples. He is, he is clearly singled out, and I get it. You know, if I want to, as a youth pastor, if I wanted to have a great youth event, I'd, I'd try to make sure the leader kids were coming because when they come, they influence others. I, I think that the weight of Peter's influence is being felt here even more so than the other disciples. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Do you see the purity of what Jesus led Peter to do? Peter had a realization that Jesus was God. He had a realization that he was not. He had a realization that God had reached to him and pronounced his sin forgiven. He said it a little differently. He said, don't be afraid. What was he afraid of? He was afraid of his sin. He said, depart from me. I, I, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Because from now on, I have a commission for you. I, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I must preach. And now you must preach as well. The word partner is used a lot through this passage. Peter knew that Jesus was God. He knew that he was not. He knew that he was sinful. And he allowed this to make him a humble man. We all know that there are times when Peter maybe has a little bit of relapse and not so much humble. But in this, the way he came to God is such a great pattern. If somebody is, a, I'm just having a conversation and they say, I, I, don't, I don't feel worthy to come to God. I might say, let me read you a little story. Here's a guy who was 
who was not worthy at all. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid of your unworthiness. Now, I wanted to ask you about this last verse. They left everything. So John, I don't, I don't know if you heard it, he said, even the fish. They had, they had just scored the mother load for fishermen. They were going to be the, the most respected fishermen at the market if they figured out a way to haul these fish in. I don't abandon common sense. I think that they could have said to some of the other workers, get those fish to market. Some have interpreted this to mean they left their occupation as fishermen. Maybe. But, you know, throughout the gospel ministry, they fished. They fished when they needed to eat. They had access to their boats for Jesus to walk on water. They were the transportation going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. I, I think that there is symbolism here. They walked away from those fish. Now, whether anybody else got on the market, I don't know. But they walked away from the fish. And they left that occupation as their primary passion. Now, I don't, I, when Jesus was crucified and Simon denied him, he did what he knew. He went back to fishing. But in this, we, the, the, the purpose for Luke's story here is to tell us that there is something more important than our occupation. It is our vocation. There's something more important than those fish. It's to be a fisher of men. Now, I, he doesn't call most of us to leave everything and follow him. But he does call all of us to place priority in our vocation over our occupation. To see how he will use our occupation to express our vocation, our, our devotion to him. And that's kind of what this story is about. Now, last thing, there is one disciple whom we know left everything. He, he was the only one of them who completely abandoned his former way of life. And his story is told next. At the very end of chapter 5, verse 27, well, middle of chapter 5. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. Not sure what the tax booth is. We know that the Romans had an oppressive taxation on all of their conquered territories because they were wanting to build magnificent things in Rome and they needed money to do it. 
So they extracted a, a tribute from all of their um, uh, subjects, all of their conquered lands. They would employ indigenous people to collect the taxes. Why? Those people knew. Those people knew the other people. That is exactly right. They spoke the language. They knew the people. They they could keep track of who paid and who hadn't. And and you know we we it's it's sort of like uh, uh, if you're not here, raise your hand. You know, we, we you, you can't count the absentees, but they would employ local Jewish people, Levi, and they would um, compensate them exorbitantly for doing this. And the way they compensated them was to say the the tax is, let's just pick a number, $5.00. But whatever you collect over that is your profit. And we will enforce your right to collect whatever you want. You have the Roman legion behind you. And you can tell the people whatever they want. So the people knew that they were being cheated. And they, they understood. They, the tax collector was one of the most hated uh, occupations there was. And so Matthew is at the tax booth and it's like, there are just some occupations where you gotta walk away entirely because what's going on is so incompatible with the gospel that it has to be left behind. Another reason that we know that Matthew never returned to tax collecting is that I'm not real sure the Romans were going to give them another chance. They were not known to be grace-filled people. So Matthew's story is at the very end. It's it's remarkable. Um, and then uh, the verse 29, I love the response. And that's why I wanted to include this story. Um, when I was the interim pastor here, 2002, 2001, uh, I was uh, blessed to lead a lady to Christ, uh, speak to her about the gospel, and she received Christ, and uh, we, we scheduled her baptism, and she invited all of her friends to the baptism, and then she invited me over to her house that afternoon to a wine and cheese party to celebrate the baptism. And a lot of my friends said, did you go? Of course I went. <coughs> did you drink wine? You'll never know. <laughs> and, and, and this is where the, the, the picture here of Levi and Matthew despised. Peter was arrogant, okay? John and James were blustery. They were the sons of thunder. Andrew was contemplative. But Levi had sold his soul to the devil. He was collecting taxes for the Romans. 
And now Jesus called him by name. It's one thing to have a, a, a skeptical, I don't feel worthy fisherman. But it's another to call a guy who has everything. He's rich. He's uh, secure in his job. And Jesus also calls him by name. He said to him, follow me and leaving everything. I, I, I bring that up because I think there's a different tone in verse 28 of chapter five than there is in verse 11 of chapter five. I, I just, I think there's a difference um, to walk away from taxes that had been collected under the watchful eye of the Roman soldiers. I don't think there was a mass cash grab. I think that the soldiers were there. They had to be there to enforce his uh, collections. But at the same time, uh, I again, the chosen depicted it. The Romans are going, where are you going? What are you doing? You're leaving everything for what? To follow an itinerant rabbi? Jesus called him, I must preach the good news of the kingdom. I, I must. I am compelled. I must go to these other towns. And I'm going to need a team to come with me. I, I'm going to need some guys to come along. And what I hope we see Sunday is that the types of people that Jesus called fishermen, some were uh, farmers, uh, tax collectors. Uh, Luke is a physician. He comes along later. It, there's a lot of occupations. There's one vocation. He called them. And when we talk about stewardship of our gifts, he didn't ever really ask Matthew to be less than who he was. He called him as a tax collector. And I, I guess he had a use for a tax collector. He called a fisherman. Uh, he called leaders. He called followers. He called women. Um, he called voca, vocation. And they followed. They left everything. They left their occupation to make sure it lined up with their vocation. And Sunday, we will hear from a man who has taken his family to Istanbul, a hostile to faith place um, where he, um, and, you know, I don't even know if we should post this, Gary, because he's, um, he, he would not be allowed to talk about what he does in detail. And then Jesse, um, is from Liberia. Uh, he's a leader. He's a leader among people. God has used his leadership gifts to elevate the, the gospel in that village. That's where the Mac and Patty Anna Library is. And, uh, and, and he's used Jesse in his gifts to gather fish, fishers of men. So Sunday will be a great day. We'll be dealing in Luke chapter 5, Jeff Will, 
Uh, I look forward to taking notes with whatever Jeff says to layer on top of what we've done. But I, I hope this little peek into Luke chapter five has been a lot of fun. Any questions anywhere? Yeah, Skip. Was talking about. Can you guys hear Skip or do I need to tell him I'll to speak up? I'll speak up. Gary was mentioning that it was almost in John. Let's talk about John. End of John, right? John. End of John. John chapter 21. 21. It was how John wrote how confirmed it was deficient, but what I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is I think in, in Luke, this is when he, when he was fishing, he was getting his, he was, he was setting up his disciples, but in John, wasn't he already resurrected and then appeared? Yeah, that's why this is a bookend where you have like, this is a beginning, it's the first time it happens, and then it's almost like this is, well, what he'll call a God wink, where it's almost like you have Jesus appearing, and it's almost like, hey, remember this thing? He, he's duplicating that thing, and it makes them recall yeah, you're, oh, you're still yeah. a disciple. You're still a disciple. The miracle is almost identical. Cast your net once again. Too many fish to haul in. Peter says, it is the Lord. And then he goes to a charcoal fire. And John loves symmetry. Uh, and, and he played off of Luke. I think Luke was probably written long before John but if you think in Luke chapter 22, when Peter denied Jesus, the scripture tells us it was beside a charcoal fire. And John says Jesus had prepared a charcoal fire to cook in John chapter 21. Those are the only two times in scripture the word charcoal fire is used. And so John loved the symmetry of Peter is being reclaimed, called him with too many fish, confirmed him with too many fish, overcame his fears, overcame his guilt. Do you love me more than these? Three times he denied him, three times he, he canceled out those denials with affirmations of his love. And so it, it's a beautiful picture. You, you really have to understand John 21 against Luke chapter 5 to get the, the end of a, a really, really beautiful story. Thank you, Skip. One thing All that right. Came, Go ahead. One thing that struck me is that um, Andrew, Peter, James, and John were already connected. So, and, and that's not to dismiss Jesus calling them, but when they left, they already knew each other. Something that always touches me is that when Matthew was called, he was already despised by his own people. He had this job where he was relatively safe and protected. He was going off with this group of people that he must have had some sense that they were going to kind of give him side eye. Uh, for a while, and that he he was essentially by himself, and he yet he followed and didn't he he overcame that fear. That's huge. brilliant. Um, we haven't explored that a lot, Emily, but probably six of the original disciples knew each other from childhood. 
Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel. They were all from the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and it is likely that they all knew each other uh, almost from boyhood. And then when he began to add the other disciples, they were from other walks of life, and they were Jews who were being taxed by the Romans. There's nothing that tells us that they would have automatically assumed Jesus's posture of grace and love and mercy. Uh, I bet he slept in a different part of the camp than they did. You make me wonder that what you just asked, if Peter, James, Andrew, and John, if they even knew Matthew. I mean, they, they had to pay taxes to somebody. Uh, did they pay them to Matthew? And was Matthew despised coming in? Did well, he's obviously either in, um, well, we're not sure where he is because in, in chapter uh, 5 or 17, it says he was in every village in Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. Uh, so we don't know where Matthew was. It would, it would, it likely was Capernaum or Tiberias because it would have been a larger city. Uh, they wouldn't have had a tax booth. They, they would have, the Romans would make the Jews come to pay taxes. They, you don't get to mail it in like you do with the IRS. All right. See you guys on Sunday. Thanks for being here. Good crowd tonight.